Well, our second scripture reading today comes to us also from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1,527, 1,527, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two, or two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. <clears throat> These are the covenant words of God. May all who hear them be unified under Christ. Last week I began our three-week series on covenants by laying down the groundwork of the prophet-priest-king covenant between God and man. I spoke of God's original covenant with Adam. Adam was to be a prophet and a priest and a king. As a prophet, he was to speak God's word faithfully to all of mankind. And as a priest, he was to protect the Garden of Eden, God's sanctuary, keeping it pure and holy. And as a king, he was supposed to be fruitful and multiply, expanding God's kingdom throughout the whole earth. Eden was supposed to grow. Yeah, Adam failed at these roles and sin entered into our world. And then all throughout history, we, we see the Bible records for us God relating to man through the use of these same covenants. The nation of Israel was born and they took up the mantle of prophet, priest, king. But just as Adam failed, they too could not be obedient to the covenant. A new representative on behalf of mankind was required. One who would keep God's covenant. This man is Jesus. Christ is both fully God and fully man. He fulfilled and continues to fulfill the role of the prophet and the priest and the king. And he does this perfectly. And in doing so, he redeemed man from their transgressions by becoming the spotless sacrifice upon the cross. Though he was sinless, he took man's sin upon himself and paid the penalty of God's wrath. And now any person who repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus as their Lord and Savior 
they are welcomed into God's kingdom. They enter into a new covenant with God, becoming a covenant people. Which leads us to our topic for today. You see, finding salvation in Jesus is not just a one-time event in a person's life. True salvation doesn't work that way. Yes, there is that one moment when a person first believes and is justified. But if that faith is truly genuine, then God indwells that person with his Holy Spirit. And for the rest of their life, they will grow in their obedience to God. They learn how to become a covenant person, taking on that role of prophet, priest, and king. Just as a husband and a wife make vows to one another for life, so too God and his church, his bride, make vows to each other. They become a covenant family. And as we'll see from God's word, this prophet, priest, king covenant requires interaction in three different directions. Vertically, in the church's relationship with God. Inwardly, in the church's relationship with each other. And then outwardly, in the church's relationship with To a lost world. So how does this look in our context? We are a congregational church. Hence the name, First Congregational Church. And being congregational, we we feel that the congregational model is the biblical model of covenanting with each other. But what does this word mean? What is congregationalism? Many think that that it means that the church acts like a democracy. While there is some truth to this, it, it doesn't give us the whole picture. The church is not just a democracy. It is a monarchy, an oligarchy, and a democracy all rolled up into one. It is a monarchy in the fact that Jesus is king. He is the head Of the church. And he rules by instructing us through his word. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. King Jesus instructs his people through his word. And the church is an oligarchy in the fact that God has appointed elders or pastors to train the saints in the work of the kingdom. We see the Apostle Paul giving this instruction to Pastor Timothy, helping him to fulfill his pastoral role. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. 
Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Elders or pastors, they are there to teach, explain, equip, correct, rebuke, and patiently woo their members towards maturity and the ability to make good decisions. And finally, the, the church is a democracy in the fact that the congregation is given authority to keep watch over one another as a covenant with God. They are to know the gospel message. And they are to disciple each other in both life and doctrine. In other words, they covenant with God and they covenant with each other. They are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's dig a little deeper into this last one, the church as a democracy, and see exactly what authority has been given to the congregation. Look at our first scripture reading, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people... Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here we see Peter's confession of Jesus. Peter has rightly identified who Jesus is. And in turn, Jesus tells Peter that upon this confession, he would build his church. So up front, we we see that God's kingdom, it, it grows through a right confession. This is that vertical relationship with God that I was talking about. And it is of utmost importance. To be a covenant man or a covenant woman, one must first know who Jesus is. Namely, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. He is is that king that was promised to come from David's line. The one who would rescue God's people from their sins and establish an everlasting rule. And Jesus is also the Son of God. Though he is fully human, he is also fully divine. He is God in human flesh. So we see these two fundamental aspects of what it means to have saving faith in Christ. Jesus is a promised human Messiah that God sent to save his people from their sins. 
while at the same time, he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Without this confession, there is no entrance into God's kingdom. This is the starting point of creating a people holy unto the Lord. Notice what else Jesus tells Peter. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. To those who possess this right confession, Jesus gives them the keys to the kingdom. Whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, before we, we begin talking about what these strange words mean, possessing the keys and binding and loosing, I want to first make it plain to you that these things are not for Peter alone. Turn the page in your Bible to Matthew 18, verse 18. <clears throat> Here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples as a whole. He's speaking to the whole group here. Matthew 18, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it's the same words. Kind of. It's hard to see it in our English translations. But the Greek here uses a plural form of the second person pronoun, you. Now, if we lived in Texas, we could read this verse like this. I tell y'all the truth. Whatever y'all bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth would be loosed in heaven. I like that better. And it gets the point across that it's not just for one man. This is a promise not just given to Peter, but to all the disciples that are present and by extension to the church. We see this in the greater context of Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over But if he will not listen, take one or two along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The context of this passage is church discipline. This is that inward relationship within the church that I was talking about. The congregation is given authority to confront another member of the church if they have sinned. This is to be done patiently and with their best interest at heart. The goal is to win that person back to the Lord, not to get some type of retributive justice. Punishment comes from God and God alone. 
but he has given the congregation authority to discern and to judge amongst themselves. This is why we see such a long process. Cool heads need to preside over such a judgment. So we see two things at play in the church's authority. One, they are to recognize true confessors of Jesus, those who claim Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. And two, they are to keep watch over those within their church body, seeking repentance of those who go astray and casting out those who continuously refuse to repent. So the church, it exercises authority on both confession and confessor. Is it the right gospel confession? Is a person a genuine gospel confessor? In essence, the congregation acts as both prophet and priest, holding the keys to the kingdom. They are a prophet in that they teach and rebuke and correct according to God's word. And they are a priest in the fact that they they judge between what is pure and impure, what is holy and what is unholy, according to God's word. In this way, Jesus has given to them his prophetic and his priestly authority, keeping the sanctuary of God which is his church, pure. Now this doesn't mean that that they have authority over what the gospel message is, for that is given to them by Christ through his word. And likewise, they don't have the authority to make or unmake a Christian. Rather, they are to listen, consider, and judge. context of this passage is within the church, that inward relationship. But what constitutes the church? Let's read just a little bit further to find out, verses 19 and 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Here we see Jesus defining for us what makes his church. It is where two or three come together with the same confession that Jesus is fully God, that he is fully man, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead victorious. This is what makes a church. And what does Jesus promise to his church? That he is there with them. This isn't some mystical pronouncement, though Christ is with every believer through the work of the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is trying to communicate here is that he gives to them his stamp of approval. He identifies his person and his authority with them. So in matters of church discipline, if a congregation expels an unrepentant sinner, Jesus gives to that congregation his priestly authority to make such judgment. 
But Jesus is not just a prophet, and he is not just a priest. He is also a king. And as king, he has conferred on his people the kingly covenant as well. Look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And as such, he can impart that royal office on whomever he desires. He does so with his church. Covenant members are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And teaching them. Jesus fulfills this kingly covenant through his church. Just as Adam was commanded to go and be fruitful and multiply, so too the people of God are to be fruitful and multiply by means of evangelism and discipleship. They are to be kings, expanding the boundaries of the kingdom. That is that outward relationship between the church and that lost world that I was talking about. As Christians, you are to act as kings and queens. And once again, at at the end of verse 20, we see that, that same promise from Jesus to be with those who do this to the very end of the age. Jesus has given to you, his church, this authority. As covenant people, Jesus confers upon you that prophet, priest, king, office. If the church is God's new temple, then Christ has given you the command to keep it pure. To keep it holy. You hold the keys. You are to determine who has the right confession. And you are to rebuke and to reprove when a member is unrepentant. And you are to go out into the world proclaiming that good news, expanding God's kingdom. Jesus has given to you this authority. Do not be timid. In using it. Now some of you may be asking yourself. Isn't this the pastor's job? Isn't he the one that's supposed to be sharing the gospel? Doesn't he decide who becomes a member and who doesn't? And isn't he supposed to be the one that disciplines the church? Not according to Christ. These duties belong to the congregation. 
So what authority does a pastor have then? Well, they hold the role of a shepherd. Look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Apart from being members of the congregation, elders or pastors possess an additional authority to teach and to set a pattern for how the keys are to be used. They are to be the example for the church to follow both in life and doctrine. They don't have the authority to command, but they have the authority to counsel. Think about the difference the differences there are between the role of a father and the role of a husband. A dad instructs and disciplines his children when they disobey. He has authority to command. But a husband can only instruct his wife. He has no power to enforce. A pastor is like a husband. He speaks into the life of the church. But he doesn't have the power to discipline. An elder fulfills his covenant duties by keeping watch over his own life and centering his ministry around the teaching and preaching of God's word. And if this is the role of the pastor, how how then do you as a congregation practically live out your role as prophet, priest, king? Let me give to you six starting points to consider. First, if you are not yet an official member of the church, you should strive to become one. How else can you speak into matters that are of most importance to the church if you don't have a voice? We will be starting our covenant classes next week, and there is a sign-up sheet in the fellowship hall. I urge you to participate so that you can become a fully functioning member of your church. Second, attend church regularly. How can you grow in your training as a prophet, priest, king, if you are never at the training sessions? Third, engage in church discipline in a biblical manner. What I mean by that is this. You want to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, there's there's those who shy away from any type of rebuke or reproof in fear of hurting a person's feelings, so so they let sin or incorrect theology just slide. On the other hand, there are those who are overzealous. They view discipline like a hammer, and they're ready to pound the nail in without giving any room for repentance. Neither of these are how Christ describes how you are to fulfill your role as a church. 
Listen to Paul's instructions from Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. You are to be brave, yet at the same time you are to be gentle. When you correct and rebuke a brother or sister in Christ. You are to give them multiple opportunities to repent. We just we don't just cast someone out. Fourth, learn to share the gospel. Again, I will be doing evangelism training during our Sunday school starting next week. If you are not sure or not confident in sharing the good news of Jesus to your neighbor, come. Get trained. Fifth, attend our annual meeting. It's there that most things in this church get decided. Let your voice be heard. And finally, engage in discipleship. While the pastor's role is to oversee this through the preaching and teaching of God's word, Discipleship is a responsibility of every covenant member. You are to be mentoring one another. God desires to have a covenant people unto himself. To do this, he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. Christ became that covenant man fulfilling the role of prophet, priest, and king. If you have faith in this, that Jesus is both the Christ and the Son of God, then you have entered into a covenant relationship with God. And Jesus has given to you the keys of the kingdom. He has given you the power of binding and loosing. And he has given to you the command to go. And make disciples of all nations. Stop ignoring God's call on your life. And step into that covenant role of prophet, priest, and king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son. He truly is the prophet, priest, king that you desire. And as such, he is our example. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and guides us as we try to be your covenant people. Help us to be both bold and patient in matters of church discipline. And grant to us a desire to go out into the world proclaiming the message of Christ to our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.